Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Ben Jansen. Dr. Jansen is a clinical director of Cannabis Doctors Australia and CDA Clinics. CDA Clinics is a doctor-led Australian company with a focus on educating doctors and assisting patients in getting approval for safe and affordable medical cannabis. Dr. Jansen has been an advocate and educator of medical cannabis for a number of years and is one of Australia's leading prescribers. In our discussions with Dr. Jansen, we spoke about the history of cannabis, how it works within the body, its safety and efficacy profile, clinical indications, and its potential use into the future. Thanks for joining us. It's, um, again, um, I was saying to Jake earlier, you know, it's interesting as these podcasts have progressed, how we're sort of starting to delve into sort of, I guess, different areas and what we had initially thought initially with the podcast was going to be about aesthetic medicine and talking about things like Botox and fillers and all these sorts of things. But as we've sort of progressed over the last uh, year and a half or so, it's ventured out into things like meditation, um, nutrition, talking to functional GPs, specialist personal trainers. And now it seems like the next logical step is to talk about, I guess, this new area of medicine, but maybe not so new for you, but I guess new to us here in Australia is this sort of medical cannabis, which seems to be already happening in other parts of the world, such as America, which are, I guess, quite progressive um, in terms of, uh, I guess, making it part of their life. And I know there's a lot of states that still don't have it, but it seems to me that it's a lot more uh, universally accepted over in the states than what it is here at the moment. Yeah, definitely a brave new world for a lot of people, but it's an ancient medicine. You know? so it's about yeah. rediscovering it really from uh, spurious beginnings of being uh, outlawed, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe we um maybe let's start at the beginning here. Obviously, it would be great if you can tell um all of our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, and then maybe let's talk into the origins of, of cannabis and take people on a bit of a trip down history lane or memory lane, if you will. Is that a bit of a pun, a trip? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, I better get my disclaimer out of the way first. My name is Dr. Ben Jansen. I'm founding director and beneficiary of both CDA Health and Cannabis Doctors Australia. Uh, and whenever we talk about uh, medicinal cannabis in this sort of four let the listeners know that this is not an inducement to use medicinal cannabis. And it doesn't go any, any means to give you personal clinical advice. We always advise that you, if you think that medicinal cannabis is right for you, that you should check with your doctors or our doctors to see if it's right for you. And we're very much compliant with the Australian legislation in that regard. Yeah. The, the history of uh, medicinal cannabis goes back thousands of years. You know, it was used by the Greeks, it was used by the Chinese. Um, um, ben, we're just losing you a little bit. Sorry to cut you off there. We sort of your microphone sort of uh, fading in and out. I don't think it's an internet thing. It, but does it sound okay from your end, Jake? Or are you having a little uh, bit of... similar? I, don't, I was wondering if it was the internet, but I mean, I can I can make out what Ben's here, uh, saying. Okay, no worries. Sorry to cut you off there. You're right there. I might just go to advanced settings. It's okay. We keep it real for people. We leave all this stuff in so they know it's a, a legitimate, uh, off the cuff discussion. So we keep no all these good bits in. Loud. <laughs> All right, well, maybe it like, makes sense, Ben, to sort of um, start at the beginning. I mean, where's tell us a little bit about the history of cannabis, um, 
in terms of you know where it all started, what it was used for, and then obviously getting to that point in time where it became illegal. I think a lot of people don't really understand the history behind cannabis, how long it's been around for, and the real story behind why it became such a why it became like an illicit or an illegal drug. Yeah, so I, I guess the, the plant's been around for millennia, um, and its use as a, a, a therapeutic um, plant has been around for you know, many centuries. We're talking back um, before the uh, Greeks, um, the Chinese used it, um, and uh, quite popular through the Victorian times there. Um, so William O'Shaughnessy um, was the scientist um, uh, from the Victorian era who uh, elicited how to extract out the cannabinoids and then put them into uh, different products, mostly tinctures that could be then be used in, in patients. But then also the dosing schedule that goes with that for, um, and it, first of all, he, he, uh, he did his studies on dogs and then moved across and, and made up um, an, uh, a way to produce it and then also give it to patients um, and humans. And it was a, a very popular uh, through those Victorian times and going into the early 1900s, and it was the most prescribed medicine by doctors up until it was then outlawed in the uh, late 1920s going to 1930s. Mm. Um, and it was around that uh, time of prohibition um, where the prohibition of alcohol was enforced, but then that eventually fell over. Um, and then the agency that was in charge of that, headed by um, Harry Anslinger, um, had nothing to do. So um, he came up with a fantastic scheme uh, to make something else illegal um, hmm. and then shift his men and money and um, uh, the political uh, movement there against that. So then they could point the finger at um, uh, cannabis uh, or marijuana, as the Mexicans call it. And then also by doing that as well, um, shift political racism that way as well right. um, and really vilify it um, and... Uh, make up all sorts of uh, mass hysteria and you know, uh, uh, misnomers and, and falsehoods just to, to push that political agenda. Yeah, I, rem- I remember that. I mean, um, you, you know, that, that movie that came out, Reef of Madness, um, you know, it's always been seen as like, you know, it's that crazy drug, it'll, it'll make you insane, it'll give you man boobs, or all these sorts of things. I know there was even more sort of nasty things that they said, in, you know, that's used for a lot of uh, racism and they sort of linked it to, to certain, you know, minority groups of people and, and, and so on and so forth. So it was really outlawed for commercial reasons, not for, Ab- yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And- and uh, one thing I think we missed off the list there was yes. was came up against those uh, those textiles, the rayon, yeah. uh, 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 nylon, you know, patentable fabrics where yeah. you a, a pretty penny. Uh, whereas cannabis was grown out in the uh, in the fields as hemp and and then made into ropes and textiles and and canvas. That's where that word the word canvas comes from is cannabis. Yeah, it seems like it's this plant that can do almost anything. You can. You know, obviously, you've got all the, the, you know, we're going to talk about the therapeutic benefits and um, it can be used as like herb, it can be used in cooking, it can be used to make clothes, paper, all this sort of thing. So, it's this sort of plant that grows like wild. I guess that's why they call it weed because it grows like a weed. Um, <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's sort of, it threatens so many industries and that's why it was it was illegal. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? This plant medicine that's been used for thousands of years all of a sudden disappears um, from people's, uh, you know, f- from, from society. Um, for commercial reasons, I mean, 
you've got like I don't know how many people in jail over uh, in the United States at the moment that are in there for for this. For, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not sort of sitting out here saying you know you should be selling drugs or anything like that. But when you think about the fact that it's becoming legal in most parts of the world now, but yet people are still sitting in jail for it, it's it seems crazy. Yeah, it's 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 been pushed just the absolute wrong way, and and that stigma still remains these days. So if we we're talking to these elderly patients, um, anyone over the age of 60, when they, they come in and, and talk to us, they say, well, you're not going to give me the thing that can get me high. Mm. Um, well, yeah. actually, that sort of is a, the medicine that would work best for you for your nerve type pain. Um, and so a lot of times it's a bit of stigma busting with these, these elderly um, patients. And it's, it's sad. 80 years of stigma is really hard to turn around. Yeah, yeah, it's like like tattoos. Someone sees you with, a, you know, if anyone over the age of 70 sees you with a tattoo, they think you're in a bikey gang, whereas now it's just universally accepted. But they did have that connotation where tattoos were only worn by people who were criminals. I don't know. There's some good and some bad tattoos out there. <laughs> some of them should, that, so of them should be criminal. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we're, we're, we're nice and wholesome here at the Medicinal Cannabis Clinic. We don't need to be put into that. <laughs> Keep your sleeves down, David. Don't don't flash your arms. (laughs) So, Dr. Justin, I want to ask, how did you get into this? Because obviously you're from a GP background. Um, So what stimulated you to sort of go down this path and and start your own company eventually? Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Uh, It's the right side of history. It's the right side of medicine. It's the right thing to do for people. Um, For me, a a GP background, an urgent care background, uh, when I saw the change of the legislation back in 2016, and that was just the uh, government then saying, hey, it's not illicit anymore, it's not Schedule 9, we're going to de-schedule it down to prescription medicines, I knew that, that, that things were changing because you could see it around the world. You could see these uh, amazing cases coming through and the, the changes in different countries in Canada, in South America, um, uh, America dragging its heels. Um, hmm. But you could see these cases where other medicines weren't working and they were causing harm. And then we're getting these cases where these people are turning their lives around, be it for chronic pain, be it for cancer, be it for epilepsy. So uh, for me, it was a, it was a no brainer really. It's, I don't think I was any more intelligent than anyone else for going, this is where it needs to be because you just simply need to look at the evidence. Yeah. I mean, did you get any um, sort of pushback from colleagues, family? Did anyone, you know, because like you said, it's got a stigma against it, even though that's sort of a bit irrational. But did you did you sort of come up against any problems with people when you said, oh, by the way, I'm going to set up this company um, basically promoting medical cannabis? Did, did, uh, did you come up against any pushback from anyone? At the very beginning, there was a lot of pushback in the medical um, fraternity in, in Australia and New Zealand. Hmm. Um, and I, I've been talking on the matter, you know, trying to educate people, going out and doing uh, conferences and, and, and educational events. Um, and you still get a lot of doctors still stuck in the old stigma. Hmm. I can't do it. I have a moral objection to it, but I will go and happily prescribe you opiates and get you addicted to that or, or some Shit. other harmful chemical. And we're talking about chemicals here. We're talking about molecules either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, your history in terms of, um, you know, moving from like general practitioner, what, what was the sort of thing that sort of motivated you in this direction to sort of leave that all behind? Did you feel like you could just help patients more by moving in this direction? Was it because I've spoken, we've had a functional GP on here before. And one of the things he was saying was he wanted to get to his patients before he got, they got sick. By the time they came to, to him with symptoms, they were already in a bad place. Um, was that like the sort of similar mindset for you? You thought you could help people more by moving in this direction? 
know, I, as I said, yeah, it was the, it's the right thing to do to to move in this direction and and to you know be able to change um, people's lives. And um, uh, it's 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 also the change the doctors' opinions as well because it, it, for the doctors out there that don't necessarily believe in the medicinal cannabis side of things, they haven't seen their own personal patient miracle. And yeah. it's when we see those patients come in and they'll they'll consult with us and they'll have a, a really life-changing turnaround and we send them back to the pay, back to the doctor and say, oh, here you go. By the way, this person's you know, really turned their life around and feel fantastic and, and are doing well. Then all of a sudden we get five or 10 referrals from them. Oh, actually it does work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you were saying that it's a schedule eight drug now. So, um, in terms of how that ranks, I mean, we've, I know we've got a lot of a lot of medical uh, professionals who who listen to this podcast. So, sorry for boring you with this question, but I guess there's a lot of people as well who aren't. Can you put that into context for how severe that is as a as a class of medication, because from my understanding, the drug that killed Michael Jackson is a schedule four or three. Um, and propofol, so, and yeah, propofol. I don't know if propofol is a schedule four. It might be a schedule eight. I'm not just too sure on that, but okay. But at um, least, like, so the scheduling uh, relates to what's called the poison standard uh, in Australia uh, yeah. and, and around the world. And uh, Schedule 3 would be uh, pharmacist only, Schedule 2, pharmacy only. Schedule 4 is prescription only. Schedule 8 is restricted medicine. So in that realm, you've got uh, morphine, benzodiazepines, THC cannabis. Um on the Schedule 4 side of things like regular prescriptions, you might get your uh, Viagra, whatever. Um, you've got your CBD, which is a, a, a non-psychoactive, doesn't make you feel sleepy, stoned or high type of cannabinoid. Uh, and then the Schedule 9 is the illicit substances. Yeah. So schedule, so propofol is a Schedule 4 in Australia. There you go. So you've got a drug. I would have thought it would have been you... more because it's... it's uh, yeah, um, I'm looking at the anesthetic that's the milk of amnesia. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, government of Western Australia Department of Health, and that says propofol is a schedule four. So that's the drug that killed Michael Jackson, and that's according to this scheduling. Is that saying that that someone's opinion is that that drug is more dangerous than a drug that's never killed anyone ever in the history of it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, okay. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute for anyone listening. Yeah. Have a think about that. That's yeah. um for someone that's a layperson, I find that very difficult to understand. Yeah. What do you think, it's, Jake? It's, <laughs> Jake's sitting there very quietly going, hmm, I'm not gonna say anything here. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, actually, I I just pulled up the schedules because I didn't know there were ten of them. And I was just looking at schedule ten, which is just to complete the story, substances of such danger to health that it warrants prohibition of sale, supply, or use. So um, yeah, there's some random ones in there like coal tar. Didn't know that coal tar was a a drug or a thing, but apparently it is. Um, but yeah, as you say, going back to uh, propofol yes, being... Yeah, you'll find cocaine as a schedule eight on there as well. So yeah. yeah, I mean, they still use that in ENT surgery for um, yeah pain relief. So yeah. Jake, you and I, were, you were sharing a story with me today about um, in your sort of training, you sort of uh, ran into um, medical cannabis over in the UK. Yeah. Um, when I was a first year doctor, I did four months on a, a cancer ward. And to be honest, it was terminally ill people, or at least half of them were. And uh, there was a lady who had really, really bad um, nausea and vomiting from her chemotherapy. And, you know, you, you go through sort of protocols of, of the common antiemetics to use, so the anti-sickness drugs and so on. And she was on her sort of fifth or sixth level of um, anti-sickness drug. And I can't remember the actual brand name, but it was a, it was a 
a, a cannabis sort of um, related drug and I'd never heard of it before. And so that was my sort of first um, sort of, I guess, experience with with this sort of topic. And I guess, to be honest, I've never really, you know, been exposed to it since because then I went into surgery and it wasn't, you know, the realm that I was dealing with. I didn't deal with chronic pain and, and those sorts of things again. So this is sort of new for me. Yeah, and it certainly does work for um, some cancer patients. Uh, some people really do find it, it works for their pain symptoms or their nausea symptoms or their lack of appetite. Yeah. yeah we, we always say it doesn't work for everyone, um, but for some people it's life-changing. Oh, absolutely. So um, what what can it be used for? So let's just sort of run through, because I actually saw your um, your talk you did on YouTube when you did that like as a 15-minute chat to, I think it was the Royal Aust- Australasian College of General Practitioners. Um, and you sort of had some tables up there and you were discussing, you know, all the different indications. And then you were looking at, you know, were you looking for, because um, for anyone listening, you can um, take the, the, um, the, I guess the tincture or the, the medication or, and split up the different, you can take out the psychoactive parts and bump up the CBD parts and the sort of varying strains of it, depending on what it is you want to treat. So could you just run us through, um, all the indications and sort of what's good for what, just, uh, I guess in, in broad strokes, sort of what we're yeah. looking at here. Yeah. I, I was like going to ask if we could sort yeah. of side backstep about 100 oh, miles because there'll be some people who go, what is cannabis? Like I've heard of this <laughs> stuff, but I don't know really what it <laughs> yes. is. Like it is a plant. You touched on that. But then from there, we've gone to medicine and okay. there's sort of no link. So right. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. I'm moving too fast for Jake. Let's do it. <laughs> So cannabis is indeed a plant. There are a number of different cultivars or strains of it. Uh, Cannabis sativa, cannabis indica. And then we've got the hemp plant as well. And these um, all have similar looking leaves to that. Some thick, some thin. Um, Like tomatoes, they'd come in different varieties. Um, Some with more content of the cannabinoids like THC or CBD and some with very, very... um, little amounts of, of those things. Uh, for instance, in hemp, hemp has a, a virtually no THC or CBD in it. So is the leaf uh, in your big sort of logo on the back, is that a hemp leaf or is that a cannabis leaf? You'd, you'd say that's probably an indica type leaf you can see in the back and they're quite broad leaves. Um, and those types of plants, that type of strain was from the Hindu Kush, what's the, you know, up in the northern Pakistan, India, up there where they had these broader leaves. Right. Versus the ones that were closer to the equator that had the, the thinner leaves, the sativa type strains. Okay. Yeah. And so, like, you know, most people would assume that cannabis is smoked. You know, there's the stereotype of, you know, people smoking stuff. But you've kind of alluded to it already. There's lots of different types when you turn it into a medicine. Yeah, so absolutely. how is that process? How does that happen? And, and how, who's, reg, who's regulating it? Where is it made? Yeah. Um, so most of the cannabinoids that you'll get within the, the cannabis plant come out in the flower bud uh, as these buds come out. And that's why it's called the recreational users or, user, or even the um, medicinal users call that the, the flower bud. bud. Right. Um, so they, they, those sorts of plants generally are for the medicinal side of things and, and even on the recreational side are grown in greenhouses or indoors where they can grow under lights or with lights and natural light as well to grow out these flowers, um, which are quite um, dense flower buds, which can then be uh, milled. And then you extract out these oily cannabinoids with either an alcohol or a different type of solvent. Um, Ethanol, cold ethanol is 
one of the more common ones, ways to bring it out. Yeah. Um, super critical CO2 extraction is another way. So once you get them out, they are these oily, gooey cannabinoids. And depending on what strain it was at the beginning will mean what cannabinoids come out and then some of the other chemicals as well, like with terpenes. If we're looking for the CBD component of it, which is the anti-inflammatory side of things, the stuff that doesn't get people sleepy, stoned or high, that would be starting with a plant that's high in CBD or extracting it out later, but that costs a bit more money. So it's better to get it in the first place in the plant that way. Uh, and what does CBD stand for? So CBD stands for cannabidiol. Right. It's the non-psychoactive, doesn't get you sleepy, stoned or high cannabis molecule. And the, and the other one is the THC. The other one that we prescribe is the THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, and that's the one that binds differently in the body, binding onto nerves to turn them down. Thus, it can make people feel sedated, sleepy, stoned, high if you have too much of it. Or what we try and do for our people with pain or anxiety or other symptoms is just use the right amount. So come in from the bottom and then just gradually increase until you get control of symptoms without those side effects. So if it's made from a plant, how do you regulate the sort of the concentration of, of all these things inside the medicine? Is it is it a pure oil or do you, do you sort of purify it from then or how does it work? For those patients that want to use the just a raw cannabis flower bud for vaporization, it just comes like that. Right. Um, I mean, they, they take off all the leaves, et cetera, it comes as, as a flower bud or they grind it up in the grinding machine. And then people will use that in a vaporizer where you're not burning it at high temperatures to get smoke, you're keeping it under that. So it's, it's below a 200 degrees, it's coming off as a vapor, much better for you. And then you're getting that into the lungs for an immediate effect. But that's only about, probably only about 5% of our patients want to have that um, immediate dosing that they require for migraine, nausea, pain, whatever it is. Yeah, most people get it into an oil form, which is then either mostly in oils, uh, some of the oils in capsules, or maybe within a tincture, which is an alcohol, which is pretty uncommon, and then taking that orally. And then if you have it orally, it's going to take about an hour, two hours to get into the body and around to get its effect. And what does the oil taste like? Like hemp, like hemp seed oil. Um, I can't say it's particularly nice um, myself. It's oily. Um, I don't don't really like hemp oil them myself I, although I have cooking with fish and um hemp seed oil i do like that i can tell right. you that okay um but most of it's pretty pretty concentrated stuff so it's it's like having olive oil um because a lot of it will be mixed in with olive oil or hemp oil another oil carrier so it tastes pretty much like the oil i guess what i'm trying to do is work out or, or should i say push the stigma to the side because this stuff probably isn't very delicious to taste it's a medicine it's, it's not medicine. like you're it's not like a you know, a fun pastime to do and you're not getting stoned. There's none of that with the CBD oil. No, no definitely not with the CBD oil. Um, obviously, with a THC, if you have too much, you can get sedated. Some people want, want that, though. They're using it as a, um, uh, a sleeping aid to get rid of their sleeping tablets. Um, uh -huh. And it works, works for some people. Okay. Yeah. I guess you could always put it like in a smoothie or you could put it into something. To, if, you, if, the ta if the taste of it's horrible, if you've got like a, you know, a great protein smoothie or juice or juice or something like that i guess you could throw it in sort of mask it that way you want to yeah, get a bit a lot, creative a lot of i guess put it underneath peanut butter on toast or mm. um underneath, uh, something yeah. oily um the actual cbd <clears throat> comes in it's very pure form as a crystal which you can then just sprinkle on food and it's pretty much tasteless okay, okay. interesting okay. 
And how and how are you sort of? Um, I think you sort of said you sort of start people on a base level. So you're sort of adjusting it, sort of like an insulin dose or something like that, right? You're trying to find the the the, the magic the magic mark for each person, which is sort of you have to titrate on a, on a case by case basis. Yeah. How much blood pressure medicine do you need to give someone? Enough to get their blood pressure under control, right? So it's the same thing with giving them, you know, a cannabinoid medicine. You know, what are we trying to treat? We're trying to treat your pain or your inflammation. Well, we're going to have a good guess at where to start, but we're going to end up wherever the patient requires and treat the patient, not the guideline. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if there's no sort of significant side effects, at least with the CBD oil, I think I read dry mouth is one of them, but it's pretty um, benign. Like what, what are the dangers of sort of starting off on bigger doses? If, if, you know, if you could do that. Um, well, you're certainly not going to kill yourself. You'd need to, we worked it out the other day, um, to kill yourself or kill myself, and I weigh about 100 kgs, I'd need about $150,000 worth of product to do that, <laughs> right. um, yeah. which is, yeah, not only is it a lot of Gallons. money, that's, that's, a, that's a really lot of, lot of actual product, product and molecule. Yeah. Um, uh, if someone were to take too much CBD, what would you end up having? Well, a dry mouth, maybe some loose bowel motions, not a lot else. If you took too much THC accidentally, what would happen? You would be very sedated. Um, and that happened with one of my patients where the, in the rest term, they were given the wrong amount. So instead of giving 0.05 of a mil, they were given five mils. So uh, yeah, a thousand times higher than they were supposed to. Uh, and the poor chap was very sleepy and sedated for 24 hours. And at the end of that, was fine. Right. And and does, you said sedated, but does it give you like a euphoria feeling, like a bit like you are stoned or not? Yeah, if you have too much sleepy stoned high, I guess the, the side effects when we talk about the THC side of things, and that's the one that's going to bind on the nerves and turn nerves down for pain is the most common thing we use it for, yeah. nerve, yeah. nerve type pain, is, yeah, that feeling sleepy, sedated, forgetful. Um, uh, people talk about the, the schizophrenia yeah. um, link, um, from the reef of madness, it was permeated as you know throughout society. But um, the 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 studies subsequently, and um, we're talking about large population studies of you know over hundreds hundreds of thousands of people, um, show that there isn't an increased rate of schizophrenia. It doesn't cause any new schizophrenic cases. But in those people that have already had schizophrenia or could uh, are at high risk for get it, then it can make it occur earlier. Right. Okay. So it's sort of um, it's. It, it's sort of accelerating what they would already have got is what you're saying. That's it. And that's why you see overseas um, in the places where it's recreationally legal that they say don't have it until the after the age of 25 because um, we all know that most schizo- schizophrenics then present for the age of, of 25. Um, and saying that, though, I do have a couple of patients that are schizophrenics and with and, um, their doctors and also their family, they have come in and said, look, actually use THC and it stops the voices and I can go about my day. And so for those very unique cases, um, I've been happy to uh, help them access the THC to help them. And, and both well, all three of those cases are now you know, back at work and feeling quite well. So can you tell me um, what a sort of a, a consult looks like when someone seeks out your, your company or a, a medical cannabis doctor? Like what, what's What's the conversation? What's the starting point? And how do you decide if it's relevant for them? Mm. So, um, for Jack anyone... Wants a, Jack wants a consult. No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm really curious. I just... You know, because I know that your company is obviously... It's a private company. Is that correct? It's not, it's not a public 
uh, company. company. Yeah, started as a family-run company, and yeah, we're still a private company. Yeah, so I'm sort of curious to know what sort of person is calling you. Are they people that have been through the public system? They're still in pain. The GP's throwing morphine at them. They don't want it, or it's not working, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, how are people coming to your business, and, and what does that concept look like? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, so anyone that hasn't responded to standard uh, medical treatment. Um, or is at risk from it and then, and then can't try standard medical treatment, then they are, are able to access medicinal, medicinal cannabis. Mm. Uh, so about 75% of our patients 75% of our patients are chronic pain patients. So that's uh, nerve pain, neuropathic pain, migraine, headache, inflammatory pain, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, osteoarthritis, um, um, various types of pain. You can, you know, the list goes on. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, about 5% are, are cancer patients. Um, about 5% are anxiety patients. Um, we have depression, uh, schizophrenia, as we mentioned, epilepsy, autism. Oh, geez, so let's, uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea. Um, if we talk about those broad strokes, um, the CBD portion of it, the cannabidiol, we use as an anti-inflammatory, a pain reliever, and anti-anxiety. Right. If we're okay. talking about THC, and that's the stuff which can sedate you and it turns down the nerves, well, it's great for turning down nerve pain, number one. Yeah, uh, great for headaches, good for insomnia if you want to use it to turn down the brain to go to sleep. For some people, they say they respond to it for anxiety, but that isn't for everyone. Yeah, I guess it's something, in some cases it may, may, sometimes make, makes more people too paranoid or more yeah, paranoid. Yeah, and you, you hear that from the um, this, uh, um, recreation users, and, and yeah. you see that, actually you see that in the studies, about 10% of people that have THC by itself without any CBD feel a bit anxious on it. Yeah. Well, I've also I've read that a lot of that is because it just makes you hyper-aware. Sometimes people get freaked out by that hyper-awareness, but I've read that um, some people, once they sort of persist for a while, they get better at being under the influence or having that in their system and they actually can still function. It's just there's an adjustment period where they just sort of need to persevere and allow themselves to, to acclimate to, to having this in their system. Is, is, that, is that right in your experience? Yeah, THC tolerance. Um, yeah. It's not not for everyone. THC, I, I have to say. So some people just it's fantastic. Just they turn around, they say, "Look, my anxiety is great, my sleep's great, good, good, good." Other people they just say it doesn't. Make, I don't feel that good on it. it. Makes me feel anxious or paranoid a bit, um, and it's just not right for them. A lot of the time, that can be with THC that's not combined with CBD, uh, especially street cannabis, which has had all that CBD bred out of it. Yeah. Uh, so when we're giving it to anyone over the age of 60 or 65, most of the time we're giving it with a, uh, a one-to-one ratio of CBD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of driving, um, I'm assuming there's lots of people out there that, that take this um, strain you know, at nighttime or the afternoon um, for medical reasons and they get up the next day and they've got to drive to work. What are the sort of, you might not be able to comment on this, the legalities of you know, can it be in your system if you're not sort of feeling intoxicated anymore? Does that mean you're okay to drive? And how they sort of, how do you know whether you're okay, I guess, to drive? So, so the uh, driving rules, um, sorry, I'm just going to pause because it might come through a bit crackly. That looks like un- in- internet's unstable. There we go. We're back online. So for driving, for CBD, there's no restriction in Australia for having CBD molecules in your body. Um, for THC, it's still restricted in every single state and territory. So you must comply with obviously your state and territory rules. Um, so you have to make sure that THC, if you're taking it, has left your body before you drive. Um, interestingly enough, there's no legal lower limit for codeine or endone or oxycontin or morphine or any of the sleeping tablets. 
So anyone that's taking any of those pain relievers like panadine and driving, they're technically breaking the law. And how long would it take to get out of your system? A uh, variable um, amount of time for that. And when we say, well, look, we just can't give you a straight answer on that because um, uh, it's, it's, it comes around how big you are, how much body fat you have, what's your metabolism, what's your dose, how much, you have, how much you, uh, are you taking. Um, and we can't give you a, a, a figure where it's going to be zero as a medical professional because that would be a, you know, a legal answer. Yeah, fair enough. I'm just wondering, I mean, I guess it would be rare, but athletes who may be struggling with pain, recovering from surgery or something, and, you know, for sporting reasons, they can't take, you know, drugs that would be sort of banned if they were ever tested. I was just curious about that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a difficult one because it's a fatty molecule, so it can, it can stay in your, your fat cells for a long period of time as opposed mm. to the water-based molecules. Yeah. Um, for athletes, it's no longer on the banned list. Um, oh, so, okay. Uh, uh, they took that off a long time ago, especially after the whole uh, USA snowboarding team came back positive. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, <laughs> no surprises there. Uh, no surprises there at all. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, the, I think the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, so these cage fighters, um, it's I think they're like one of their like sponsors now or something, though, or they've got some sort of affiliation. So I think that most of their fighters have got access to. I know a lot of them do. Um, aiding in their recovery and I think there's actually some jiu-jitsu tournaments over in the states where they actually are under the influence when they compete or when they practice because it makes them more creative and sensitive um, yeah, yeah crazy yeah, some people yeah again those responders to THC say that, that they um, can think more clearly or, or more creative absolutely yeah. um, and the, the other reason they're taking the THC and the CBD is actually for protecting the brain um, because uh, what you know is Cannabis is bad for your brain, right? It, it kills off brain cells. It's what we learned as kids growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, it's what Reagan told us at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in fact, uh, the US government currently holds a patent on um, cannabis and cannabinoids being a brain protector. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. Whoa. That's, that was one of the main reasons I got into it because um, my, uh, my mother unfortunately died from a um, uh, degenerative brain disease. Right. And I found out after she died that the US has this patent on it and it just just turned my my hair on end. It made me quite angry. Yeah, um, yeah. Easy. If you're going to talk about that specific study, um, that was done, uh, funded by the uh, Reagan administration uh, to find out uh, or prove that cannabis caused brain damage. So uh, they hired a scientist and got him to get a hold of monkeys and made put them made them make apparatus for the monkeys, put it over their face. And made them have um, a whole heap of uh, uh, cannabis marijuana pumped into them. And, and the first time they did it, they cut open the monkey's brains and they went, there's no brain damage. Okay, not good enough. Do it again. <laughs> so the second time around, they gave them the equivalent of something like 50 Cuban um, cannabis cigarettes in the space of five minutes. Why five minutes? Because you're just alive at the, as a monkey at the end of five minutes. So they asphyxiated them completely with just smoke going into them, and then then they opened up the light, uh, sorry opened up their brains, looked in there, and went, "Ha! Ah, dead brain cells. Cannabis kills brain cells." It doesn't sound like the most scientific of uh, experiments. You look it up online there. Um, uh, Reagan uh, cannabis study with uh, the monkeys there, and um, it was took them five years uh, to get the truth on how the uh, the studies were done. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. So I'm just going to turn my phone off because it's making my laptop ding and it's still doing it. 
I've got it on flight mode. It's, it's, we've got a magic phone. Sorry about that, guys. Um, uh-huh. One thing I wanted to, I'm still not clear on that. Why would you use CBD versus the THC? I'm still not clear on when you prescribe them and why. Yeah. So CBD doesn't bind on nerves and, and make you dopey, sleepy, forgetful, that sort of, those sort of effects and turn down nerves. The way CBD works is it blocks the breakdown of naturally occurring endocannabinoids. So this is cannabinoid molecules inside your own body, endone, which your body produces to signal back and forward to different cells. And because it gets in there and then blocks those break, the breakdown of those natural signaling molecules inside your body, all of a sudden it turns up how loud they are signaling back and forward. So uh, for your body to turn down its inflammation or to turn down its pain signals, uh, you use your endocannabinoid system. And if you're boosting that, then it can be helpful. Um, and so CBD, inflammation, pain, anxiety. THC, we're looking to control the nerves and turn them down. Separate functions, separate pathways. And not to get too geeky, but are there more than one receptors that they work on? Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, for the, all the geeks out there, um, the CB1 receptors are in the brain cannabinoid. Uh, type 1 receptors are mostly in the brain, the spinal cord. Um, interesting, in the, in the brainstem where you control your breathing, etc., um, there is no CB1 receptor, so that's why you, you can't overdose on it. It's not going to um, uh, make you stop breathing, etc. Uh, whereas the, the CB2 receptors throughout the body, I don't know if there's really a tissue that doesn't have them, and, and they're involved with those cell-to-cell messages and, and intracellular messages. But yeah. beyond that, there's the um, other cannabinoid receptors. We're it super geeky now, the G- GPR55. I can list a whole bit of other receptors. And my favorite ones are the PPAR alpha and gamma inside the cell. So hold on. So does the body has its own endogenous, uh, what's the word? Uh, Endocannabinoid system. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, gonna, yeah. well, it has the system, but obviously exogenous cannabis is working on that. But what does the body use internally on the same system? That's, that's my question. So the endocannabinoids, the two most famous ones are anandamide, um, and the other one is 2-AG, 2-acetylglycerol. Okay, definitely. Yeah, have those. <laughs> so what do they do? They're still involved in pain and things like that? multiple different pathways. So not just specifically pain. We're talking, the best way to describe it would be cellular homeostasis. Mm-hmm. Um, as they are involved with trying to get the cell back to its optimi- optimized function where it uh, has enough energy, it has enough uh, antioxidants, it has enough of its processes acting in the right ways. Mm. Um, could you explain a little bit what the difference is between like vaping and ingesting it in terms of how it gets processed by the body? Because I know that when you, you vape it or you smoke it, it's sort of uh, you get like almost an instantaneous um, response, whereas if you take it internally, it's going through your liver and so on. So how, how, does, that, how does that all work? Yeah, and it's, it's the speed of onset um, would yeah. be one uh, thing. And then the other, other thing would be how high the peaks of each of the chemicals go and how they metabolize. So the number, number one reason to, to use it as a vaporized or inhaled version would, would be for speed of onset. Um, as someone who you know, wants to have it for an acute migraine or acute pain or, or nerve pain or a spasm or, or, or nausea or something that's happening right then you know, really quickly. That's yeah. why you mostly inhale it. Um, the, the other way to commonly have it is, as you say, ingestion there is an oil or a capsule or, or other edible. Um, and that way it goes down through the gut and then through the liver, past the liver where it's metabolized. Um, and with the THC side of 
um, things that means that we get more of a metabolite, um, which tends to go into the brain a bit easier uh, compared to the actual THC that you would get with, with inhale, inhaling. Um, from our point of view as, as clinicians, it's mainly around the speed of onset rather than what we're looking to do with the, the plasma and levels of the THC and, and the metabolite. Right. Okay. And is it a different sensation for the, for the patient that's taking it? Do they, will they know other than if they knew whether they smoked it or ingested it, would they feel any difference in the feeling of it at all or would it feel exactly the same? For the CBD, no, um, really, because uh, the CBD effects are, for anxiety are, are pretty mild right. and they take days to come on. The CBD affects how the cells work for their, their, their functions and their processes. So it's, it's a downstream effect of the CBD. It takes a number of days, we say three to, wait, three to seven days for the, for the CBD to start to work. And if it's an anti-anxiety, you just generally feel, oh, geez, I'm a, a lot less anxious than I normally am. And, yep. um, for the THC side of things, it's if you inhale it and you're using it for pain or, or spasm, it would be you know, within that five to 10 minutes, all of a sudden you start to feel that pain go away. Whereas if it was oral, you'd feel it then start to fade away over that longer period of time, one to two hours. Um, for the sedation side of things um, and you know feeling sleepy, which is maybe positive, you're trying to use it to go to sleep, but as a side effect, um, if you're inhaling it, you can do a little bit and wait uh, that five to 10 minutes and then do a wee bit more, a lot more rapidly than you can with oral dosing. So right. with the oral dosing, we might every day just increase by a drop yep. and then a drop so that we can gradually come up and rather than get to a level where you go, whoa, geez, that's way much too much. I can't do anything. I'm really quite sedated. I need to lie down. We're just going to gradually get, to, get up to that level to control the symptoms. So it's a bit like um, if you're taking it for you know pain, it's a bit like having a Panadol. That you know it will kick in in half an hour, maybe an hour, and uh, th- that's pretty much the end of it. Yeah, uh, it's it's it's, it's, it's like it's a bit like pediatric medicine where you weigh out how heavy a child is and then get your dose right. Whereas adult medicine, medicine everyone's a seventy kg white male, <laughs> right? Which is obviously nonsense. Yeah. It's not yeah. ideal. It does not not always keep treating the patient to the to the the best of your ability. So, yeah. I mean, not to get into sort of too much detail, but how, how do you dose it? I mean, is it drops? Is it teaspoons? Is it uh, you know, how, how does it work? Because because most of it comes in oil form, we use drops as the main measurement. Or if it's um, uh, a bit more dilute, then you might measure it in mils. So you have a dosing syringe. We just draw that out, and then you have it orally or, or put it with what you're eating. Um, and we start with, say, start with one drop. I always say start with one drop. It's really easy to take more medicine. It's really hard to take medicine out of you. It's also quite hard to use those pipettes and get one drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're, you're elderly, you have, uh, you know, you know uh, arthritic hands. Yes. Um, for the THC, especially the THC side of things, I say, you know, put a spoon out drop onto the spoon because if you've done too many drops, you can put them back. It's God, in your no. mouth. You can't, you're not going to put it back in the bottle then, are you? Gosh. Jake's like, I haven't heard from Nana in a few days. <laughs> <laughs> She's had too many drops. <laughs> so you wouldn't want to have Parkinson's and be doing your drops at the same time. No. no. no, no. <laughs> Get someone else to help you out there. Yeah. And it's variable uh, for, for even the elderly population. I have some elderly population who – who take one or two drops and they can have their pain really for feel sedated and go to sleep. Yeah. Whereas my grandma, she'll take 20 drops. Yeah. Of the same product. 
Yeah, right. Okay, gotcha. You mentioned um, helping sleep. Now, um, I'm listening listening to a podcast a couple of years ago um, with a guy called Dr. Matthew Walker. Um, he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and he was talking about sleep. And they did talk about um, the way that uh, cannabis can affect your sleep in terms of what levels of sleep you go into, whether it's just the REM sleep or the deep sleep. Um, can you just talk on that a little bit? And um, I can't actually remember what the outcome of the conversation was, which is kind of ironic, but um, I do remember the conversation took place. Yeah, I find with the THC, it's about finding the right dose to get to that level of, of feeling relaxed and yep. ready for sleep and then to sleep. Um, and if you take too much of the THC, it goes beyond that into that psychoactive realm where instead of you feeling sedated in the, in the neurons in the brain, you're switching off one area but then the, another area would just be going over the top and, and people find that they have um, uh, racing thoughts as opposed to relaxed thoughts. Uh, so with the, for insomnia, it's very much is about you know, getting the, the, uh, the right dose. And so you do really have to come up and find what the right dose is for you, I guess. And then beyond that, if you go beyond that and use even more like just accidentally drink the whole bottle, well, then you're just very sedated lying down on the couch. Right. How many, uh, or, or who can prescribe it? It, it? Presumably, obviously, your company is one source, but can a standard GP be trained in, in this stuff, or, or how does it work? Well, thanks for putting the plug in there for CannabisDoctorsAustralia.com, oh, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll mention it at the end, too. We'll give you a big plug, don't worry. <laughs> uh, uh, any doctor in, a, in Australia can prescribe, uh, subs, yeah, subsequent to uh, whatever their state and territory laws are. Um, but basically, uh, it comes down to selecting a product uh, from the TGA SAS scheme um, and then applying to get that one approved on an individual basis, um, an anonymous application, by the way, to the, um, the government. So they don't know which the patient's name, et cetera, but they obviously know who the doctors are prescribing. Um, and then um, uh, we just assess the patient, decide which treatment plan we're going to go down and then uh, get the right product and, and give it a trial. And so where do they get the product from? So you, you, you've mm -hmm. done a consult with someone, you decided, yes, you need this amount of medicine for this period of time and this is the dose. And then they can't obviously go to their local uh, chemist warehouse, presumably. Yeah. Well, yes, they can. Oh, they so, can? Yeah, oh. that's it. They get dispensed by the pharmacist. So oh. the, the, they get their referral into us at Cannabis Doctors Australia from their doctor, go to the website, and then we consult with them and then we'll get the approval and write the prescription and it goes to the pharmacist and the pharmacist dispenses it. It's a so does it have to be ordered in specially it's, or do all pharmacies have it? Yes, so the, the pharmaceutical products that are in use in Australia have to be pharmaceutical grade, which means they have to be tested to be pharmaceutical grade, created in a pharmaceutical way and a legal way. It's all legal cannabis products yep. that have been tested to be safe and then at pharmaceutical grade comes from a pharmaceutical wholesaler to the pharmacy, to the patient. Right. Okay. Um, and like, what's the like um, approximate cost? I mean, it's sort of people will be asking, hey, this sounds great. Now I want to talk to Dr. Bear Jansen at cannabisdoctorsaustralia.com.au. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what, what's, what's it cost? Like, what, what are people looking at roughly? Why does it roughly? still sound dodgy? It's not dodgy, but why does it still sound like it is? I can't stigma. get Stigma. Yeah. 80 is a stigma. It's gotcha. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much does it cost? Well, it's not subsidized by the government. So, um, unfortunately, it's all a, a private prescription. Right. Um, we find that a patient average is about $5 a day as a cost uh, yeah. across the broad range of, of patients. So, some patients will be spending more than that and some patients will be spending less than that. 
Yeah. I can tell you in Double Bay, Sydney, about a coffee. <laughs> so much we pay for a coffee in Sydney at the moment. So it That'd doesn't sound like much. More Sydney coffee, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no fancy milk either. That's just cow's milk. No almond milk, no soy milk, no oh. oat milk. That's just this, the straight milk. Um, in terms of all the indications, I think we, you sort of mentioned a few, but just for anyone listening, do you want to just maybe run through all the things that it can be used for? Um, I think I've seen this list written somewhere before. I don't think I've come across a single medication that treats such a wide variety of different ailments. Um, it's almost like a miracle. Isn't I'm going to have to pull up my list because it's so big. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it depends who you talk to. I like to talk, use my list, which um, uh, has 36 conditions that I quote. So uh, chronic pain is a big one. There's a lot of lump, lump into that. Anxiety, seizure, seizure management, so epilepsy, palliative care, restless leg syndrome, PTSD, Huntington's chorea, um, Parkinson's disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, migraine, cancer, pain and symptoms, tremor, chemotherapy-induced nausea, uh, muscular, sorry, multiple sclerosis, uh, spasms, um, dystonia, uh, blood sugar control and diabetes, insomnia, chemotherapy, or we've been over the dyspnea, dyspnea, shortness of breath, autism, Alzheimer's, ADHD, schizophrenia, um, neuropathic pain, undiagnosed, other, or other origin, depression, uh, tinnitus, uh, interesting silicosis, uh, movement disorders, otherwise not otherwise specified, and Crohn's. Mm. And um, presumably there'll be think- plenty more as time goes on. Well, I think the big one there is the pain because uh, you can you know, really, uh, that covers most of what we do there. And uh, from the nerve type pains uh, through to the inflammatory pains, um, osteoarthritis, arthritis in general, spinal pain, uh, that's, that's what we mostly treat. And can you sort of give us an idea of why the sort of, I guess, the traditional pain medicines either aren't working or what's the problem with that traditional pathway? Yeah, uh, the real problem out there at the moment is the opiates. Um, they've been hard pushed through the 90s, 2000s um, to the detriment of society. Uh, and they are with risk, unfortunately. So the, the number one thing is um, they are dose escalating. So you take an opiate consistently, but then your body will become uh, no longer sensitive to it and tolerant to it. And you require higher and higher and higher doses of endo and otagen, et cetera. And then you get the side effects from not having that, so then the withdrawals. And, of course, they're, they're quite harmful as well with regard to actually killing people. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's you know, three Australians a day die from opiate-caused death. Uh, if we talk about Lyrica, which is another common nerve drug, there's, there's something like 200, nearly 200 cases a year uh, from memory of people dying from taking Lyrica. I've taken Lyrica. Um, it was terrible. One of the worst yeah, experiences of my life. Yeah. Suicidal tendencies. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I had some nerve damage in my foot and I was on Lyrica. It was one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I prescribed Lyrica to one chap and he, his wife said um, for the whole day he was walking to the walls trying to open it like it was a door. Mm. That's wow. crazy. It doesn't sound fun. But because it's called medicine and it comes from your GP, it's sort of accepted. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. Um, it's, it's gone through the... Uh, uh, the trials to get itself registered and um, and now we can prescribe it, those sorts of things. Yeah. Sorry, did I cut off your list or did you get to the end of the list? Did you that was it? the end of my list. I can go through the nerve list, but oh, I'm no. the pain list. That's that, crazy. I guess yeah. you, to put things in perspective, I mean, you think about how many people, you know, die of Panadol overdoses or, you know, how many women out there that have had adverse uh, responses to the pill 
Um, you know, like this just seems like, you know, you can just get something over the counter that can potentially be really fatal. Um, sort of thing, it sort of feels like this sort of need, and it's good that's heading in the right direction, but it feels like it needs to really, um, you know, come under some major reform at some point in the future because it just doesn't seem, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the government has warned the doctors out there, especially the general practitioners, to stop prescribing so many opiates. Yeah. And TJ has actually uh, uh, decreased the pack sizes that you can get for the opiates now, and um, some of them are, you know, like Panadine, um, now a prescription-only medicine, can't get it through the pharmacy, uh, and the pack sizes have come down. So, I mean, the world is very aware of opiate-related deaths and, and harm, uh, and, you know, this is just one piece of the puzzle, I guess, um, and, and a good option for some people. I don't know if you could just summarise the sort of the law in Australia versus um, the medical cannibalists. And Am I right in saying it's only in Canberra at the moment or at the ACT, or have I got that totally wrong? Summarise the law in Australia. Uh, medicinal cannabis is legal in all of Australia. Uh, okay. Federally, completely legal. Um, if you get it prescribed, you can use it anywhere in Australia. You can carry it all through Australia. Um, the only difference in each state and territory would be around um, what doctors are allowed to prescribe and how easy they can access it. So in Tasmania, good luck to you. You have to consult with us up here um, at Cannabis Doctors Australia in Queensland, which we can do for you. Um, when you're talking about recreational use, and I think that's what you're alluding to there with uh, Canberra, okay. um, recreational or own growing for medicinal use, um, you're allowed to have grow a certain number of plants, but that's only being decriminalised. It doesn't mean that it is then legal. Yeah, okay. Sorry, got my wording wrong, but thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, right. Um, and what do you what do you think the future holds? I mean, what, what, if you sort of had to sort of uh, gaze into your into your crystal ball and and sort of think about what it's going to look like in the next sort of two to three years, where, where do you think it's going to end up? I, I think you can easily look overseas to where things have already changed, and um, if we use probably Canada as as, as the best example of that, um, the laws changed in Canada around medicinal cannabis when the constitutional court ruled that it was unconstitutional not to allow people to access their medicine. Mm. And their medicine was different types of, of cannabinoids or cannabis. Once that had been a ruling, that's the highest ruling you can get within, um, you know, within the legislative structure. So from the constitution down, then you have to then alter the framework. Could that be a challenge in Australia? Quite possibly. Um, although there would be an argument to say that, hey, we already have legal medicinal cannabis because hence we have these clinics popping up like us um, and doctors prescribing around Australia. Yeah. Where do I see us in the next few years? More products that are more readily and easily accessible um, and less stigma as we move forward. But there will still be those doctors out there that haven't seen their miracle yet. But when they do see their own miracle patients turn around on medicinal cannabis, I'm sure that we'll get more referrals from them. Yeah. Can I ask about um, your company? I read that you, when you started, you crowdfunded it. That's quite interesting. So how, how does that even work? And, and, and who owns the company? And, you know, what, tell us about the process. Well, they first of all, got funded from my pocket, actually from the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, the crowdfunding was, uh, it was a good experience. Interesting experience. Um, I think we were the first Australian um, cannabis crowdfunding. I, I think, I don't, don't know if anyone has taken me up on that and said I'm wrong on that. 
Um, but that involved engaging in a crowdfunding um, organization business that had the uh, the license to do that. Uh, and, and then beyond that was just creating, obviously, the business plan, um, then promoting that out to the public uh, and allowing um, anyone out there that wanted to invest in the company to uh, then invest and, and join the CDA family. So those uh, people have uh, a proportional share in the company? They do, yes. So uh, we have 550 shareholders now. I started right. as a family run and own business and now we have some shareholders that we, we're very much uh, happy to have but very much also think about whenever we do anything. Great. That's awesome. Now, we've got a couple of um, guest questions. I think we've pretty much already answered one of them. I'm just going to double check. Uh, someone was asking, when will this legally be viable in all states? Well, I think you've just said it is, apart from Tasmania. Yeah. It's it just, yeah. If you, if you, yeah. Go to our website and, and get your doctor to refer you in, and, and we'll discuss if it's appropriate for you is the answer to that. Okay. And then there was a specific question regarding Parkinson's. I mean, when would it be used and what are, what are the benefits? Parkinson's is a nice, uh, uh, interesting one um, in that it's a nerve problem. It's the brain. It's the nerves which aren't functioning properly. So which cannabinoid are we going to use? We're going to use the THC side of things that acts on the nerves. Um, are we going to give a pure THC? Probably not because they are, are usually a lot older and you want to uh, mitigate the sleepy stone psychoactivity effect with some CBD. So you do a one-to-one ratio. Right. Um, now, then we're going to say, oh, is, is it going to defreeze someone with Parkinson's? If you've got Parkinson's, you're frozen, you can't move as well. There's a very small proportion of Parkinson's patients, maybe 5% or so, that I've found that will defreeze by taking it and be able to move more freely. Uh, the the other bulk of the Parkinson's patients are already on Parkinson's medications to defreeze them, but the side effect from defreezing with the anti-Parkinson's meds is you look like Michael J. Fox. You start to wiggle. Yeah. And so that's when we use the THC to try and dampen down the wiggle, the, wig, the wiggly um, uh, side effect. So um, as uh, Parkinson's medications increase, get more wiggles, use a bit of THC medication to stop the wiggles. Um, and it would usually be only about one or two milligrams four times a day. So these guys are usually spending about $2. Yeah. And I think you mentioned um, your mum's disease. Can it help with sort of cognitive dementias and, and those types of things or not really? There's some studies out of Israel, um, use in rest homes, um, uh, where they found that a decreased agitation, increased appetite, increased socialising. Um, from our point of view, um, even by just using CBD, actually, on a number of patients, we do find that the rest homes are reporting the, the, the patients are uh, uh, better with the dementia, better with their interactions, um, and sometimes we use a bit of THC with them as well. So um, it's, I'd say it's probably a 50-50 whether it works for those symptoms of dementia. If, it, if it's going to stop you, is it going to stop your uh, dementia from progressing? Uh, there's a theoretical uh, neuroprotection there, but no one's done the big studies to prove that yet. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Mm. Uh, just scrolling through. Um, this is from Leah. She's a nurse in um, Sydney. She wants to know why does or why is there a link between cannabis and on all of its products and in the teens and schizophrenia? What is happening? Why does it do that? Why is there a link to it? Yeah. As in um, how does it predis? How does it make those people who are already potentially predisposed? predisposed. To it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't think anyone really knows the answer necessarily. There may be uh, certain genes which then predispose you to it. To it. I, I have seen in a study. Um, but uh, if you're talking about you know, those, it, it unmasking it, if you're taking too much THC, um, then it can you know, become not sedative but overstimulating in certain areas of the brain. Um, like having more alcohol or not enough sleep, that's you know it's going to cause an overactivity in a certain area of the brain, um, and then you're more at risk of having that schizophrenia unmasked. I actually saw that in someone who I used to know at school. He used to smoke. He used to smoke a lot, not me. I didn't never touch that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he he uh, had he had severe problems. He he had uh, had to move in and and sort of have help, and he didn't go to university, and his life was ruined just by smoking too much. Um, cannabis so yeah it does happen yeah yeah absolutely and um, so not for everyone not at all and uh, if you've got a family history or a personal history of schizophrenia then we certainly uh, wouldn't be prescribing any thc for you yeah well i guess it just comes down to um common sense right i mean some people can't drink can't handle their alcohol you know um some people can't take certain medications it's just about you know having common sense understanding um, the process and you know, as you said going to a professional like yourselves and, and, and doing it the right way this is an interesting yeah. I don't really understand the background but maybe you guys will because I think you're more um, up to date on this so microdosing with medicinal cannabis mm. what does that mean D- does that ring a bell with you Ben yeah I think we we start off and every single time we we do use it as microdosing um, right. and then bringing it up to a, a level where it's going to want to work but um, it even if you're microdosing anything, you're looking for an, an output and an effect uh, on, on to control a symptom. So um, I think it's probably more of a hmm, uh, popular term for some of the other that, that's linked in with some of the other um, psychoactive molecules out there that we probably don't, yeah, it's well, not, not, it, not in our realm. I didn't actually read the other part of the question, but she basically said, is it similar to microdosing with other psychedelic type drugs. Uh, she's talking like psilocybin and stuff like that. That's yeah, becoming really yeah. popular in the States at the moment, apparently in, in Silicon Valley, they're, they're doing that for, so I, I think that what they're doing is taking doses that don't have any sort of major sort of debilitating side effects, but gives them uh, clarity and creativity. I think that's sort of what they're doing with those sort of really low doses of psychedelics. From what, from what I've read, Actually, uh, they're using them for people with PTSD from Iraq as well. I think. Well, yeah, it's being studied in I think John Hopkins University in the states at the moment. They're doing um, clinical trials for them and, and, and for PTSD and so on. Have you heard about that, Ben? Yeah, um, psilocybin's LSD microdosing for yeah. for depression, for anxiety, for um, neuropathic pains. Um, yeah, but those are that's very uh, uh, heavy. Um, uh, psychedelics. We're talking about LSD or or psilocybin. That's um, on a scale. When you take that, you can be depersonalized and uh, completely hallucinate away oh. from reality. Ego dissolution. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, a long way away from where cannabis is. Oh yeah, it's just interesting that now we're, we're sort of um, you know these studies are, are being done. So there's you know there seems to be serious um, medical focus on you know things like cannabis. They are looking at things like you know. Uh, psychedelics as well it's just interesting that we sort of come full circle we've created all these weird and wonderful d- drugs and and so on and they're sort of now we're going oh cool maybe we had some answers here growing in our backyard that maybe you know maybe let's look at these um yeah, yeah. super super interesting 
Um, so in terms of how people get in touch with you, if they want to reach out and have a consult or get their doctor to reach out to you, they heard this podcast, they want to run it through their GP, how, how do people best do that? Best way to get in contact with us is through our website, cannabisdoctorsaustralia.com.au. Uh, up there, you'll find the uh, referral pack, the information um, contact form if you have any questions. All the frequent asked questions are up there as well. Um, we, we make everyone go through the website so that we can make sure that everyone goes through our patient care team to make sure that we have the consent, you are aware of everything, plus we've got that referral from your doctor so we know what we're treating. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys on social media? Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that one worked. I'd like <laughs> yes, your so Instagram page. Disclaimer would again, right here. This is not an inducement to use medicinal cannabis. Yes. If you think cannabis is right for you, please check with our doctors or your doctor. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ben. That's been fascinating. I've learned a lot for sure. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. And um, uh, very much pleased to be on the podcast and uh, hear some more. Yeah, thank you. And, and sorry for all the uh, the bit of the false start there and the, the sound issues, but we got there in the end. You, you, sort of, you did well under pressure. Thank you for, for, for sort of persevering with us. No, no problems at all, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Good luck. All the best. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.